What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, I chat with my coach, Ryan Solomon of Revive Stronger. And Ryan was on early on in the podcast. I think it was episode six. We talked about metabolic adaptation. Really great episode. Go check it out. I'll link it in the description. But today, we're nerding out about training. We are talking about something called stimulus to fatigue ratio, or SFR, as we'll call it at some point during the episode. Essentially, SFR, or stimulus to fatigue ratio, talks about the amount of stimulus that you get from a certain exercise or rep range or tempo or technique for the amount of fatigue that it costs. And if you have no idea what I just said, that's totally fine. We explain it in you know pretty intricate detail to start the episode off. And then we talk about how different things like exercise selection, different rep ranges, different techniques, different exercise order can kind of optimize how much stimulus you're getting from your workouts for how much fatigue you have to pay for them. The, I think I lost power three quarters of the way through the episode, but I was able to pull the audio, so it's all good. Even if the audio is from the Zoom, it's going to be fine, no problem. I didn't get to pull the audio off of my uh, roadcaster here, and so the audio might be a little bit different than what you're used to, but I, got, I was able to recover all of the audio, so it will. Uh, you guys aren't going to miss anything. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. What's going on, Ryan? How you doing, bud? I'm doing well. How are you, man? Good to have you back here, man. I'm good. We... We just flew in from Arizona. I'm back in New Jersey, uh, quarantining for the time being and uh, definitely regretting it to some degree. How's the weather out there? How are things there? Uh, we are currently getting hammered with some snow. We got like four inches a couple days ago, four inches a few days before that, and we're supposed to get four more today. So I'm going to be shoveling us out of here. But on the plus side, where I live is small enough to where we don't really – to worry about like COVID as much, like we're not densely packed, it's super rural. So on that end of things, it's good. So, nice. you know, that quarantine situation that you're in right now definitely doesn't sound like a good time. Yeah, we, I think we had, I think this past weekend was the biggest snowstorm that one of the biggest ones New York had ever had. I think we had like 22 inches. And so oh, yeah. staring at feet of snow right now, my dog <laughs> is thrilled, but nobody else is thrilled. Yeah. yeah. Shit, man. And how, how are things like, regarding gyms and lockdowns and stuff like that where you're at yeah it's gyms are open as of right now which i'm you know knock on wood i'm astounded by but it, it you know mm-hmm. um i'm certainly happy about um masks uh enforced and you know people being smart staying away from each other walking washing everything down basically acting how we should mostly act like, all the time like at, people <laughs> yeah, actually yeah. wiping down benches and dumbbells i'm like i'm like i've yeah. never seen this before like this is amazing right Hopefully yeah. that continues after yeah, this and all that. For sure. Stuff. Yeah, it's cool, okay. Man. It's, it's not so bad. We're gonna we're gonna hope we're gonna fingers crossed that things stay open. Um, yeah, for sure. Let's yeah. um, you know, I always like to start with you know, I'm gonna obviously I record an intro afterwards, so we'll, we can I can sing your praises afterwards. But I like mm-hmm. giving the listeners, and I know I've had you on by the way. For people who don't know, Ryan is my coach, um, and for all the coaches listening out there, like the best thing you could do to further your business and help your clients better is get a fucking coach. Like it just doesn't necessarily mean you are all of a sudden subordinate you don't understand things and you need help but like you'll be better you ask a million questions find somebody who has a different set of skills and understanding of things and you will grow um for sure so i like starting with a little bit of like why i decided to have you on and i don't not sure if this was something i was doing when we first i think you were my sixth podcast um but you are a coach at revive stronger which for all intents and purposes is like an evidence-based bodybuilding company team um who specializes in Maybe it doesn't only specialize in bodybuilding, but you guys are very much at the forefront of quote unquote evidence-based bodybuilding, which I think evidence-based bodybuilding as a culture is in this constant pursuit of finding what's optimal, right? 
But you, I know you, you are also, you're a man of the people. And yes, you work for Revive Stronger. Yes, you have one hand in that pursuit for what's optimal. But I know that you work with everyday people, myself included, and understanding exactly what this podcast is about is where optimal meets practical uh, is something that you do really well. So we're going to talk about some advanced concepts today, um, but I'm really glad that it's going to be the two of us chatting about it because I know that we will always be able to kind of pull it back down to what's practical for the individual. Yeah, man, absolutely. I think that you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what Revive Stronger is. And, you know, quite a few of our coaches focus more on the competitive athletes and stuff like that. But my specific area is more so recreational bodybuilders that they still want to get, you know, pretty close to the best results they can, but maybe not to the point to where they want to compete all the time and stuff like that. So yeah, absolutely, man. Cool. Yep. Totally agree. So today I want to talk about a concept that has been coined by Dr. Mike Isertel and the guys at Renaissance Periodization, and it's called stimulus to fatigue ratio. Um, and I know that this is going to be, listen, if you're listening and you're not a huge training nerd, then this one might not be something you're going to sink your teeth into. But if it is something that you're interested in from a training perspective, from a programming perspective, there's going to be a lot of nuggets in here. And stimulus to fatigue ratio kind of you know, on some level dictates a lot of the decisions that you make when you create training programs and you execute training programs. So there's going to be a lot of nuggets in here. So if it's, so stay tuned. If it's a little bit over your head, I promise we're going to bring it back. Um, to, to again, what's practical. So why don't you give us just as the listeners, myself included, just a, uh, a brief definition of stimulus to fatigue ratio, and we're going to break it down ad nauseum, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first off, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the amount of stimulus compared to the amount of fatigue that you're getting per given unit of effort in the gym. So breaking that down a little bit further, when, when I'm talking about stimulus, what I'm mainly talking about is, okay, what is the level of kind of signal that we are sending our body for the adaptation that we want? And if we're talking in the context of growing muscle or hypertrophy training, the adaptation that we want is muscle hypertrophy. And to send that stimulus for muscle hypertrophy, it seems, it seems as though one of the primary drivers to send that signal is mechanical tension on the muscle or your muscle produce having some sort of contraction while under load. So lifting weights is a good way to send that signal for muscle growth. And then fatigue on the flip side of this is also something that's a little bit tricky to kind of measure and even to kind of define. But I think that most people have a little bit of an intuitive sense of what you mean by when you say like you feel pretty fatigued, you might feel a little bit less ener energetic or you finish a set in the gym and it's like, that was pretty, pretty dang challenging. That was hard. It could also be defined as, you know, the amount of recovery resources needed after a certain kind of bout of training or something like that. So when we're talking about stimulus to fatigue, we're mainly talking about, okay, what is the level of kind of signal that we are sending our body to grow muscle compared to the amount of kind of recovery cost that incurs for that signal that we are sending our body and what's kind of the ratio there. And the idea is that if we optimize the ratio of the stimulus that we're providing our muscle to grow compared to the amount of recovery resources needed to recover from that bout of exercise, if we maximize that, that could result in the most kind of total growth possible before we kind of hit that limit of we're under so much fatigue to where 
we can't even really train hard or we can't really recover from our training and stuff like that. So this idea is kind of around optimizing those two different variables to have as much stimulus as we can to grow muscle with as little fatigue as we can as well. Yep. I, ex excellently put. I think a, just a summary would be like every exercise that you do, every movement that you do, every exercise modality that you do um, is going to give you some form of adaptive response, some stimulus, some, some benefit. Um, but it's going to come at a cost of how difficult that is, how hard it is, how tired it makes you, how sore it makes you, how much it hurts your joints. And we're going to talk about some of that in a sec. But every, let's say for now, let's just focus on exercise selection. Every exercise that you pick is going to give you some level of benefit for some level of cost. And mm -hmm. this is something, whatever, just in a general sense, something that I talk about at like every single time on this podcast is, is trade-offs. And we're looking at a cost-benefit trade-off of the exercises that you're picking. Like what is going to get you a really good hypertrophy muscle building stimulus and not fuck you up too bad. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think when you, I want to circle back around you said, okay, when we're defining stimulus, we're thinking about how much hypertrophy am I getting? How much muscle growth am I getting from a certain unit of work, whether that's an exercise or rep range or whatever, what hypertrophy mm -hmm. benefit am I getting now? Just focusing on stimulus, not necessarily the ratio to fatigue just yet. It's like you mentioned the mechanisms of hypertrophy, uh, mechanical tension being the main driver, but also metabolic stress and muscle damage. And yeah, that's cool. But like for someone listening, it's like, okay, <laughs> how are we, what proxies are we using to decide? Like, how do I know? It's like, okay, great. Like I get it. Okay, cool. cool. Good stimulus exercises is really good mechanical tension. And then you're like, okay, but what the fuck does that feel like? Like what, yeah. what proxies are we using to decide whether or not an exercise has a good stimulus? How do we Absolutely. know? Yeah. So it's, it's a little tricky, but I don't think it has to be super complex or anything like that. I think that there's some kind of different rules of thumb that we can use to kind of decide if an exercise has a kind of good stimulus for us. And one of them is just a subjective kind of mind muscle connection for that exercise. When, when you perform that exercise, do you feel like you are allocating the tension of that exercise towards the target muscle group you're trying to train? So for example, when you do a, a barbell row, do you, while you're rowing, do you feel a nice contraction in your back while you're rowing? Or do you kind of feel it more in your lower back or somewhere else opposed to your target muscle group, target muscle group? And an indicator that we're getting a good stimulus there is while you're performing the exercise, you have a, you feel a really nice contraction in the muscle that you're targeting. Similarly to this, how, how good was your muscle pump after training this exercise? If, if you do a set of squats and you're, you look down on your quads and they're just totally pumped up and they're, you can feel them swelling up and stuff like that. Well, that's probably a pretty good sign that we have overloaded that muscle group to some degree. And we've provided a pretty good stimulus there. So by looking at how good the pump was, the subjective kind of mind muscle connection. And then also this one's maybe not as strong of one, but how sore that that muscle gets after you're training it. And the only reason I say that that might not be the best indicator there is because, you know, there's some muscle groups that it just seems no matter what we do, they're not going to get like super sore. And just because they don't get sore after doing a certain exercise doesn't mean that that was a bad exercise. And if you're not getting very sore at all in general, I don't think that that's bad for hypertrophy per se. However, if, if you do have an exercise to where when you train that muscle group, 
you get a decent amount of soreness in that muscle, that is at the very least a sign that, well, if that muscle is getting a little sore, a little fatigued the following day, we've probably overloaded that muscle with the collection of exercises that we used for that muscle. So by using kind of subjective mind muscle connection, our muscle pumps and how sore a muscle got from a given exercise, we can kind of start to get an idea of the level of stimulus or stress that we were allowed to provide on those muscles through those exercises. Absolutely. Super well said. I think that if you were going to, if we were going to say, what are the proxies for uh, uh, stimulus, we'd say soreness, like you said, my muscle connection and pump. And I think that they are a matrix and in one of them without the other two isn't, doesn't tell the whole story. And that's why I think you were like saying, okay, soreness by itself individually, it's just, it's not like, okay, you got sore, great stimulus. That isn't always the case, but it's a piece mm -hmm. of the puzzle. And if you got a really good pump, you felt it in the target muscle and you got decently sore, like you can put those three together and be like, okay, that's a good stimulus. But there are going to be times where you are deceived. You know, you can get a really good pump by doing a zillion reps of something. And that doesn't mean that we're getting a huge hypertrophy stimulus. You can get a great mind muscle connection without getting, you know, a huge pump or getting really sore. And so if we're Absolutely. looking at just one of those things, it's a little bit deceiving, but it's starting to pay attention. It's starting to think about, it starts, I think of it as a during, um, uh, a during and a immediately after and a, a, like a slightly longer term after it's like during the exercise, are you getting a mind muscle connection shortly after that exercise? Do you feel kind of pumped the following day to two day to three days? Are you feeling like you worked out that muscle? Um, and you're looking at it kind of on those three time scales. Um, and it can sound confusing. And so every time you and I, we have, we, we're going to talk about this. Like, I want to come back to like, okay, what does the average person need to be doing? Well, you kind of just need to start being more present in your workouts mm -hmm. and thinking about, am I feeling this where I'm supposed to be feeling it? Just start with paying attention during your set. Are you feeling it in the place you want to be feeling it? And then just start paying attention afterwards. Like, okay, I did one set. It was a hard set. How do I feel afterwards? Okay, I did a second set. How do I feel afterwards? The next day, do I feel sore in the places that I want to know that I worked? Um, and how do those three things fit together? It doesn't need to be so meticulous, but you just need to start to pay closer attention to how certain exercises are making you feel in real time. And then shortly after, and then maybe in the days after. Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it there. I think that a super common thing to do, especially early on, I know that I did this very early on is I went in the gym with the goal of just doing exercises and not necessarily with the kind of mentality of an exercise is just a tool to stimulate my muscle to grow. And when you kind of come at it from a perspective of, I'm not just in there to do exercises with a certain amount of reps and a certain amount of weight or whatever it might be. I'm in there to specifically stimulate my muscle to grow in the future. Then I think that you can kind of come at it, start paying attention of, okay, how did that muscle actually feel when I trained it? And I like your kind of tears there of, okay, during the exercise, how did, how did it feel? Did I get a good mind muscle connection? after immediately after that, did I get a little bit of a pump the following day? Is there some sort of fatigue there? Is there some sort of soreness? If you can check those boxes, you can be pretty certain there. And also really good point on, it's important to look at all these in, in connection with each other as, you know, I could stand here right now and flex my bicep and feel a really good mind muscle connection in it, but there's no kind of tension going through there. That's probably at least I think there are studies actually where people mm. just flex really hard and see a little sure. bit of growth from that. But for most people, they're not going to see a robust, optimal amount of growth from just sitting there flexing. So I think that it's important to look at all those in collection. So absolutely, man.
Cool. So let's flip the script here. Let's talk about fatigue. So now we have our proxies for stimulus. We have mind-muscle connection. We have maybe potential uh, like DOM, soreness. We have pump. How, what are our proxies for fatigue? Because I think if we were just trying to find really stimulative exercises, which by the way, I think is a good pursuit. I think it's a decent place to start. If you've never thought about the interconnection between stimulus and fatigue, I think it would be okay. Just let's focus right now on really robust high stimulus exercises and let's move again after in that conversation, start to build a, a, a combination of, okay, really stimulative exercises, but which are the ones that also don't mess me up? So what would be our right. kind of proxies? How would we subjectively start to put together, you know, what is it like, what are we looking at when we're saying, okay, this exercise, it causes a lot of fatigue or it doesn't. Yeah. So I think that this one's a little bit more tricky than the stimulus aspect of it. And to me, it's, it's probably a little bit more kind of subjective and that sort of thing as well to where it's like, after you finished a certain lift, how kind of taxed does your entire body feel? So an example of this is if you finish a set of deadlifts, when you finish that lift, you're probably going to feel a lot more taxed than if you finished a set of, of hamstring curls or something like that. And that's not me saying that hamstring curls are better than deadlift in all contexts or anything like that, but just kind of that subjective feeling of how do you feel after you perform that exercise? And we can start relating that back to our, our stimulus. So if you perform deadlifts, but then you perform an RDL. So the distinction there here for me is usually deadlifts pulling from the floor and then RDLs just kind of, it's more so the eccentric phase, not going all the way down to the floor and less just kind bend. of, yes, less knee bend, just hinging at the hips there. And when comparing these two exercises, often people will find that in, in the RDLs, they'll feel a similar amount of stimulus in, in their glutes and their hamstrings, like during the set, the mind-muscle connection, the pump, the soreness the following day. But when you compare these two, usually when someone finishes a set of deadlifts, they feel just subjectively more fatigued than a set of RDLs. And the deadlifts might also carry some fatigue from maybe just being able to do some more overload overall weights there to where maybe your grip or your, your traps, your upper back, stuff like that's kind of getting fatigued. And that's, you know, maybe that's fine. Maybe that those are areas you want to grow as well. But if we're specifically focusing on the hamstrings and glutes for that exercise, well, with that example there, it might kind of start painting the picture of maybe these RDLs have a similar stimulus, but just a little bit less fatigue there. So I think that subjective kind of difficulty following an exercise is a decent kind of proxy for fatigue. I also think that do you get soreness in areas that aren't your target muscle group? So like I said, with deadlifts, if you're specific, specifically focused on your hamstrings and glutes and you don't care about your traps, but the next day you notice that your traps are crazy sore from deadlifting or something like that, then that might be an indicator that that exercise is providing a, some sort of fatigue to other muscles that aren't specific to the muscles that you want to train for that kind of muscle group. And an example of uh, a recent client of mine, you know, maybe he's listening to this. I don't care the way I'm not going to talk shit about him or anything like that, but there was a ab exercise that he was doing to where part of the ab exercise was kind of stabilizing himself with a weight above his head and kind of doing, doing crunches with that. And a lot of that exercise or some of the fatigue from that exercise was likely coming from just trying to stabilize himself with that weight and stuff like that. When in reality, I wanted that exercise to be specifically targeting his 
rectus abdominis and just getting that range of motion in his in his abs rather than kind of worrying about that extra fatigue from trying to stabilize yourself with your arm or something like that. So that's another example of where we might getting some extra fatigue there outside of that specific muscle group that we're targeting for that muscle. And, you know, if, if I asked him about that, he might've noticed some more fatigue in his shoulder or in other areas from the exercise the following day. So I would say that two areas that I look at for fatigue is, did you, when performing this exercise, did you feel it in other muscles outside of kind of your target muscles that you wanted to feel it in? And did those kind of other areas get more fatigued the following day? And then just subjectively, how kind of, how kind of fucked up did you feel after this exercise compared to kind of similar exercises that provide a similar stimulus here? I think that by kind of starting to pay attention to that stuff, like you mentioned earlier, we can get a better idea of fatigue there. Yeah. And this is where I find that it's a more interesting conversation because if you were just like, it, it's very likely that if I list the highest stimulus exercises, I'm also listing some of the highest fatigue exercises. And this isn't mm -hmm. a low, this isn't a lack of fatigue goal. The goal is not to not accumulate fatigue because, you know, the same training that, that makes you stronger also brings fatigue. Like it's an inevitability. And so you're not yeah. trying to, if I list the highest fatigue exercises, it's not like you're not doing those. You probably are doing a lot of them. It's about mm -hmm. this balance of stimulus and fatigue. And so it's about, you know, finding which, like, what is the best bang for your buck? And so I, I, I always find this fascinating because if you list, if, if somebody just heard you list, saying that right now, they're like, okay, I'm never doing deadlifts again. I'm not yeah. doing anything. I'm only doing isolation exercises because yeah. I don't want to tax my synergist muscles. I don't want to tax my central, tax my central nervous system. I don't want to tax yeah. my cardiovascular system. I don't want to tax anything that isn't my target musculature. Like, <laughs> but that's not the case because we do have other factors at play. And obviously a lot of moving parts, which we're going to talk about in a bit, but I always find that interesting because if you're listening to this and you listen to the stimulus side and you're like, okay, all right, I'm going to list my, the most exercises that really do beat me up. And, and then, you know, I feel yeah. good tension. You're like, okay, barbell row, uh, high bar <laughs> squat, uh, you know, low bar squat, deadlift, uh, overhead yeah. presses. And then you list the highest fatiguing ones. You're like, okay, low bar squat, deadlift, <laughs> overhead presses. And you're like, oh, yeah, God yeah. damn it. Like, what am I doing now? And it's about yeah. finding the balance between those two, which I always mm -hmm. find is very interesting. And I think the RDL deadlift is one that we can briefly have, I think that you put it, put it really well. It's like, if your goal is glute and ha mostly hamstring hypertrophy and you're like, mm -hmm. okay, hamstrings, great deadlift. It's like, okay. Like, yeah. If you do deadlifts and you get a really robust feeling of tension in the hamstrings, um, you know, they get a little bit sore the following day. You have a good mind muscle connection when you're lifting great, go nuts. But if your upper back and your traps are wrecked, and you're exhausted the following day, just from a CNS perspective, like it takes heaven and earth for you to, to deadlift mm -hmm. so hard. And you're taking five minutes between sets and it's just wrecking you, but you could probably get a very similar hamstring. Let's just focus on hamstrings here, hamstring, maybe glute as well. Um, hypertrophy stimulus from an RDL. And, and I, and I have this experience all the time when I talk to clients who have, who, who have goals of, you know, leg hypertrophy, where it's like, okay, we're probably going to prioritize, um, RDLs over deadlifts, just because you can probably mm -hmm. do more of the RDLs and get more from the RDLs and beat yourself up less. Um, we're going to talk about later in the show about um, like, when do we kind of disregard the fatigue component? Is there a time to disregard the fatigue component? Is there a time to, you know, more prior, more highly prioritize the stimulus component? Um, mm -hmm. But for sure. So just to kind of sum, summarize that up, if you guys are looking at your exercise and you're trying to assess the amount of stimulus that you're getting from an exercise, you want to look at 
in the moment, the mind-muscle connection that you're feeling, if you're doing a, a barbell row, where are you feeling it? Are you feeling it in the muscles that you want to grow? And then shortly after that, maybe in between sets or you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes later, like, do you feel pumped up in the muscles that you want to grow? And after that, in the 24, 48 hours thereafter, are you feeling a little bit sore, disrupted, you, you know, some subjective acknowledgement that those muscles worked in the muscles that you want to see grow? And then on the fatigue side, we're kind of looking at, again, I like that you said, it's, it's definitely a little bit more sub subjective. Um, mm -hmm. You're kind of looking at, did I like, and I love that you, you had put like, did I get sore and feel tension in muscles that I didn't want to see grow? Like, did I distribute more unnecessary load to other parts of my body that I didn't want to see grow? And a lot of times people are like, oh my God, it's compound exercises. That's the point. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. But in a compound exercise, there are multiple, like multiple main movers. There are, mm -hmm. you know, or at least multiple main goals of that exercise. I'm talking about muscles that aren't really getting enough of a, a stimulus for hypertrophy, but are still getting taxed for, for no good reason or no great reason or no reason that's worth the fatigue. Um, and so it's, it's like, okay, did I feel pretty effed up afterwards? Am my CNS kind of rocked? Am I super tired? Are synergist muscles that I, weren't, that I wasn't really trying to grow, are they really sore? Are they really fatigued? Did I, have, did I put unnecessary fatigue on the rest of my body? And I also think if, you, if your goal is hypertrophy, and I think this comes back to just kind of like a real basis of what, what the goal of hypertrophy is. The goal of hypertrophy is to bring the target muscle close to failure. Um, and so if you're feeling like you're doing exercises that are limited for other reasons, it's very likely that that's probably a, a poor SFR movement for you. Um, if you're feeling like you stop your, your squat sets because your cardiovascular system is shot, you know, I know this is me. You, you, you program for me squats. And I'm like, Ryan, we're just not doing more than eight <laughs> reps of squats because yeah. if I do, my quads won't feel a thing. I'll just be huffing and puffing. Um, yeah. And so if you're feeling like synergist muscles, muscles that you like, if you're doing deadlifts, for example, and your grip goes, if you're doing deadlifts or, and you're, you know, or, 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 or high bar squats and your core breaks down, like those, not, it's not the point of the exercise. This is probably a poor SFR movement or a poor SFR variation of the movement, which we can get into in a bit, but you want to look at, you know, what is, what am I getting out of the exercise for? What am I paying? And I think mm -hmm. one thing that you were kind of about to say was like starting to focus on this kind of stuff is the difference or one of the main differences between exercising and training. And I don't think mm -hmm. everybody in the world needs to train. I don't think everybody in the world needs to massively focus on SFR, <laughs> but having a general yeah. idea of like, what am I getting for this? What am I paying? And is, are there better things? Is there other things I can do that have a better cost? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just thinking about the kind of opportunity cost of each lift that you do, you know, is there a kind of better, better stimulus to fatigue trade-off? And, you know, even there's even practical considerations behind this as well with how long your session takes. Like if you're doing a bunch of deadlifts and you have to rest for five minutes between sets, but instead you can knock out a few sets of RDLs and get the same stimulus in like half of the time. Well, that's a big consideration for a lot of people that are just kind of the general gym goers that don't want to spend, you know, 12 hours in the gym each week. And one addition to kind of what we mentioned earlier is sometimes if you perform an exercise and you don't feel it kind of in the target muscle group, that might not be particularly something wrong with that exercise, but it more so might be something wrong with the execution of that exercise. Or even if you find your grip is giving out, well, maybe some sort of wrist wraps or something like that could be helpful or using a belt on certain exercises. So there, 
there's different things that you can do with your technique or different things that you use to kind of improve the kind of stimulus to fatigue ratio across these lifts. So I think that, you know, just scratching off barbell rows right away because you don't feel it. Sometimes you have to give exercises their fair shake of really trying to perform them, perform them well, and kind of getting that mortar pattern down and stuff like that as well before just kind of scratching them off your list as well. For sure. And yeah, that was a super important segue. Cause so what I want to talk about next is what are the things that, that can influence SFR? Like where do we apply this idea of cost benefit? And I, and I will start with the one you just said, which is technique. And I think if, if you're doing a certain exercise and you're not getting a good SFR, you're not feeling in the target musculature, you don't have a good mind muscle connection, pump soreness, um, you might not just want to scrap it immediately. I don't think your first step is scrap it immediately. If you're doing mm-hmm. squats and you're not, you're standing up, you're back in the bar and you're like, I don't feel sh- in my squat in my quads. Like I'm not feeling anything in my quads. Like it's not like you should never squat again. Um, a lot of exercise, like I'm not saying you should o- always just rely on the biomechanics and the kinesthetics of the movement. But like if you're doing a squat, like with relatively decent form and getting some mm-hmm. decent amount of knee flexion, getting relatively deep, like your quads are working. And I'm not saying yeah. that, that, that that's it because we wouldn't be having this conversation if that was it. You just trust the biomechanics of the movement. Like you don't, you should also pay attention right. to where you're feeling it. If you're getting a pump, such and such. Um, but I think technique is huge. If you're, if you're doing a leg press, uh, for example, and you're like, wow, I only feel this in my adductors and my glutes. Um, okay. Well, it's all right. Maybe your feet are, you know, too wide or wider than you would work best for you. If your goal was quad hypertrophy or same thing with squatting. It's like, you know, if you're not feeling it in your quads, you're getting wrecked to your adductors. Maybe it's like close up that stance a little bit or widen up that stance mm-hmm. a little bit. And similar with a barbell row. It's like, if you're, if you're rowing, you know, let's say you're rowing to the belly button and that you're not, you're not feeling it in the target musculature and you start rowing a little bit higher up to the chest, like, first look at your technique. I love that we started with this because it, it actually is in fact, probably your first thing you should look at. It's like, what's my technique look like? Is there something I can do to optimize this? Are there any other um, technique adjustment examples in certain exercises that come to mind for you? Yeah. So I would say that absolutely agree in that technique is one of the best ways that we can improve the stimulus to fatigue ratio. And I think that one of the biggest things that people have a hard time with is taking some load off the bar so they can actually use a full range of motion on their lifts like that. I get it. Like our egos are in the gym and we want to lift more weight. And, you know, I come from a, a background of lifting in a gym of a bunch of football players in high school. And all we care about is ego and how much we lift. And it's really hard to take that weight off the bar and use a full range of motion. But for the sake of hypertrophy, I think that if you can get more out of less weight, that's a pretty good indicator that you just improved your stimulus to fatigue ratio. So if I can get more stimulus out of my quads by using a little bit closer of a stance, maybe using some heels and getting down a little bit deeper and really feeling that stretch at the bottom of the lift. And I can do that with 200 pounds instead of using 400 pounds in a super wide stance and kind of doing a maybe slightly above parallel squat or something like that and get more stimulus for my quads with half the weight. I think that, that you just took a ton of kind of just sheer what's called axial loading, kind of loading your spinal system that can have a lot of impact on your overall kind of CNS fatigue and your central fatigue by loading your back like that. So 
by getting more out of less weight there using a full range of motion, I think that that is one of the biggest things that you can do to improve your stimulus to fatigue ratio. So that's, that's definitely one place I would look kind of across the board. That's not specific to any particular exercise, making sure that you're using a full range of motion. And I would also say that you can go like too far with this to where you start turning pull downs into a tricep pushdown, which it's not necessarily what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the full range of motion for that specific muscle group that you're training, not necessarily just trying to move the bar farther and taking over with other exercises or other muscles. When you no longer feel kind of increasing your range of motion increases the tension on that muscle, then you're probably good there. But using a full range of motion, lightening up the load a bit, that can help. Also, I think that using things like for example, on a lot of rowing movements, what's helped clients is rowing movements in particular seem to be one of the most challenging exercises to feel in the target muscle group. Like a lot of people just have a hard time connecting with their back. And one thing in particular is actually making sure to kind of pause those movements and at kind of full peak contraction, maybe you're doing like a, a close grip cable row. And at that peak contraction, you really squeeze your back as hard as you can and pause at that peak contraction. I think that that can really help with things as well. So playing with our kind of rep tempo and our rep cadence a little bit with pauses and different things like that, maybe slowing that eccentric a little bit just to make sure that we're in control of the entire movement, opening up our range of motion a little bit and not just lying to ourselves when we want to use more weight. And I think those are a, a couple of the biggest areas that we can kind of do across the board there. So I'm not sure if you want me to dive in any further there, but I'll let you kind of take the reins here. Yeah, that's perfect. Totally agree. I think that's a, that's a really good example. I think a lot of times the things that you're, the things that you do to afford you to use more weight actually take you further from what's optimal for hypertrophy. So if you're, mm -hmm. if I'm thinking, honestly, I just posted my first reel ever, actually my second reel ever. And it's a barbell row reel on like how to barbell row. And the first thing is like pro tip, like actually bend over in your barbell row. <laughs> and like yeah. the things that you're doing to, afford you to use more weight. And when I'm thinking about a barbell row, I mean, instead of being actually horizontal or as horizontal as you can get with a neutral spine, you're standing up at like a 45 degree angle and you're, you're, you're able to use more weight that way. But what you're doing is you're actually putting more stress. Like we just talked about on synergist muscles on, on places that you're not trying to grow so that you can use more weight, which in turn mm -hmm. increases axial load on the spine, which is not a great thing. If it's not bringing the requisite benefit, um, you're probably not pausing. You're probably not able to focus at all on mind muscle connection. You're probably not controlling the eccentric. Um, and so a lot of those things that we're doing, the ways you're adjusting your technique, your range of motion, your tempo, the things that you're doing in those thing, in those scenarios to use more weight, are actually taking you further away with, from what's probably optimal for hypertrophy. So a good, uh, you had a good example. I think of, I think of bent over rows and I think of rack chins, like rack pull, uh, like rack pulls. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think of like, and, and this is not, Listen, we're talking about the context of hypertrophy. If someone wants to come in here and tell me the unique, specific strength benefit of doing rack pulls, like we could talk about that <laughs> another time. But like for yeah. for back posterior hypertrophy, for all the reasons that you're deadlifting, doing rack pulls, which is essentially for those of you guys, it's like a deadlift out of the rack where you're the bar is elevated, you know, 
uh, almost up to your waist and you're just doing a very restricted range of motion like yeah you use a ton of weight i've seen people rack pulling 10 plates on each side it's like <laughs> that's not what's optimal for hypertrophy you could probably do use a quarter of that weight actually get to the floor get more hypertrophy in the muscles that you want incur less yeah. fatigue um be able to do more sets be able to you know acquire more growth for the fatigue cost and so yeah i love that one i think that one's great i think the next one i would want to talk about is um so once you've well, let's stick with this hypothetical. Let's say you're doing a certain exercise and, and it's not, you're not feeling what you want to be feeling stimulus wise. So you're like, okay, let me look mm-hmm. at my technique adjust my range of motion, my tempo, uh, maybe my hand placement, my, my foot placement. I'll add a pause, slow the eccentric. I'll add some wraps, whatever. Um, what have you done that? And now we're looking at like exercise selection. Like how does exercise selection influence SFR? Yeah. So I think that for certain individuals, there's probably certain exercises that, you know, no matter what we do, like you said, if we've gone through kind of the ringer of playing with our tempo, playing with our range of motion, you know, maybe trying out some heels on the squat, whatever it might be to try to have it feel better. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem like our body jives well with this movement. So a lot of taller individuals might have a difficulty with kind of a full depth squat, but we can put them in a leg press and they can have a nice kind of full range of motion there. And I think that that's an example of sometimes no matter what you do on the squat there, your biomechanics of your personal anatomy just isn't going to kind of jive well with it. And in those situations, then we kind of look at other exercises. I think that still defaulting to try to have your exercises be pretty kind of compoundy or a lot of them kind of in that area of compoundy. So for legs, this might be squats or leg press or lunges or different things like that. And we can talk a little bit more on that trade-off between kind of having those highly stimulative exercise versus more isolated exercises and stuff like that. But there's probably going to come. You're saying don't scrap, don't scrap your high bar squats for leg extensions. Like, yes, exactly. I'm saying if you accept the fact that, okay, I've tried everything on high bar squats and I just don't think my body works well with these. My next step wouldn't be to go to a leg extension or a super isolated muscle group. I would try to look for, okay, well, what's kind of like the next closest kind of compoundy exercise that we could do here to kind of drive adaptations. And that's when I'd start looking at a leg press or maybe it's some other, yeah, yeah, some other squat variation like that or something like that. And if that feels a lot better for you and you feel like you go through those stimu- those stimulative proxies that we gave earlier and you check the boxes on a lot more of those, then there's no reason that you need to stay kind of tied to your back squats or whatever they might be. And I think that as long as you are still adjusting your overall weekly volume to make sure that you are training enough to make sure it's an overloading stimulus, but not so much that you're kind of under recovered going into your next sessions and stuff like that. It all kind of works itself out pretty well. So I'm not sure if I even answered your question there. I kind of got into the weeds a little bit, but let me know where you'd like to go with that. Yeah, no, I think, uh, listen, we're both coaches. We both work with people and we're both getting feedback from training sessions, even if it's uh, like pulling teeth. Like I want the feedback. I want to know how the squats felt. And I think a lot of people they look inward and they're like, okay, like my squat sucks. Like it's not, I don't, I don't do it well, but sometimes, sometimes after we've exhausted technique, range of motion, tempo adjustments, like sometimes it's like, Hey, maybe this isn't the best movement for you. And if your goal is hypertrophy, 
there are for sure no mandatory exercises. We can find a modality that gets you in. Let's talk about specifically the squat. Let's say, let's say you have super long femurs and it's just your, your squat's super hingy and it doesn't feel good and you get pain in your back. And it's like, at some point you might say, okay, I'm better off with X, Y, Z, a heel elevated goblet or a, a Smith squat, hack squat, leg press, whatever. Um, I think it's important for people listening. It's like, Hey, if you've been, if you like, if you never did a deadlift again, there's nothing wrong with you. Like um, I will go on the record to say most of my clients or many of them don't deadlift from the floor. And it's because most of them aren't professional power lifters and don't have to deadlift from the floor. And if their goal is glute and ham hypertrophy, it's like, okay, we could probably, yeah, occasionally do a deadlift pattern uh, from the floor. Totally. It's nothing wrong with it. Super high stimulus, but we might be playing a little bit more of an SFR game and getting better results from choosing something like an RDL. Um, and I also think that one that goes, and I, I'm going to get backlash for this because uh, all my clients suffer from this, but unilateral versus bilateral exercises. I think, you know, unilateral exercises by definition are going to take you twice as long. They're usually, let's say it's something that has axial load, like a, like a B stance RDL or, uh, you know, whatever, no action, not as much on a Bulgarian, but like you're doing both legs. Like this is going to be more fatiguing. You're, you know, holding the dumbbells and you're going through the motions, step ups, Bulgarian split squats, lunges, like these are unilateral exercises are going to be per unit of benefit, more fatiguing. That doesn't make them bad. Remember, we're not scrapping high fatiguing exercises. We're just mm -hmm. thinking like, and again, I just like, I will almost never give somebody more than one unilateral exercise at a time. If our goal is hyper uh, in a session, if our goal is hypertrophy, it's going to take super long. It's going to be super CNS and cardiovascularly fatiguing. It's like, dude, if you're doing Bulgarians and then you're like, okay, front foot elevated reverse lunge and then single leg RDL, like we're going to be here for nine hours and you're going to be, your lower <laughs> back's going to be shot. Your like your traps from holding dumbbells are going to be shot. Like, and it's going to take you forever. And so I think that mm -hmm. unilateral versus bilateral conversations, like if you're programming for hypertrophy, unilateral can be wonderful. I think it does provide some unique benefits, especially for people who have struggle with some of the bilateral um, like things they could be doing squats versus split squats, let's say. Um, but man, try programming yourself more than one unilateral exercise in a session and tell me how you feel <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think most of my clients kind of ask me specifically not to program a bunch of unilateral stuff. And usually they come at it from more from just a time perspective, but there's absolutely that stimulus to fatigue ratio perspective as well to where, you know, if I finish a, a single, single arm or whatever it is movement, after I finish that set, I feel similarly fatigued after I would finish a bilateral set. And you also have those considerations of when you're doing like a, a single leg RDL, for example, like you mentioned earlier, well, your lower back, that's, you're literally doubling the volume on your lower back there compared to performing it with both legs. And you're probably getting a similar, very similar stimulus on your kind of hamstrings. And, you know, you could argue that if you're doing it single leg, then maybe you focus a little bit more on each leg and you're able to do a little bit more and stuff like that. But I definitely think that that's a big consideration. Now on the flip side, that doesn't mean I think single arm movements are bad. Like my, my favorite rowing variation for me personally is like a single arm dumbbell row. And for me personally, that just feels a lot better. All those levels of kind of stimulus feel better than a barbell row. And I'm able to use a lot more weight there. And for me, the kind of trade-off is worth it, but it kind of comes back to what we're talking about this entire conversation is the trade-off of stimulus to fatigue worth it is the trade-off of, of time worth it. And then you can kind of come to the best decisions there. 
Awesome. Totally agree. Let's talk about one last big one. And then I want to move on to what I want to finish with is, so we're talking about what things influence SFR. How do we apply this notion of SFR? Uh, and I think we talked about technique, range of motion and tempo kind of mash those into one. I think we talked about mm -hmm. exercise selection, which is another big one. It's like you're picking techniques and ranges of motion and tempos that maximize SFR. You're picking exercise selections or exercises that maximize SFR. And you also are picking rep ranges that maximize SFR. Once your technique mm -hmm. and your exercises are picked, now I have to pick what rep range am I going to do this exercise in and how does F SFR influence that? So, um, yeah. So how does that, how does SFR influence rep range? And then we can go through some like common examples. And for the record, before we even like, I don't know if we've even said this, but all the things that we're talking about now, RDLs and deadlifts and high bar squats versus hack squats. It's like, there are some general similarities between how people are going to assess SFR for certain movements. Um, but there are absolutely a ton of individual differences. There are going to be mm -hmm. people who listen to what Ryan just said about the dumbbell row and be like, Fuck that! I fucking hate those. Yeah. Personally, yeah, I, you, for sure. I you've programmed me like uh, yeah, I know. of choice, and I never pick single arm dumbbell row because for me, like you said, I'll finish one arm on my dumbbell row, yeah. and I'll be as tired as if I finished a cable row, and so uh, like a bilateral two handed cable row, and so everyone is going to have different assessments of SFR for different movements, for different techniques, for different tempos. Um, yes, there are a, a lot of overlap, I would say. And I think it's important to acknowledge the overlap um, because a lot of people listening are going to feel, are going to totally resonate with what you said. But just remember, if you don't resonate with one of these examples, like that's okay. There's a ton of inter-individuality. Mm -hmm. So uh, sorry for that tangent. Let's talk rep ranges. No, that's, so one point on that before I talk rep ranges. So since I like single arm dumbbell rows so much, I tend to program those quite a bit with clients because I'm like, I like them, so they'll like them. But I think for our example here, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I've programmed them specifically for you in the past, like you said, and you're like, dude, this isn't happening. And you're definitely not the only client that's told me that. So yeah, there's a ton of- Cable row? Sounds good. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, coach. Thanks, right coach. on. But yeah, that's definitely happened on multiple occasions. But switching to kind of rep ranges here, there was- I think there's a really kind of practical study that goes to exactly what we're talking about. And in the study, it's been a while since I've read it, but I think the general premise was they compared doing like a seven by three of a certain exercise compared to a three by 10. So seven sets of three compared to three sets of 10. So volume was kind of equated in the groups. And the difference was kind of more sets and a lower rep range versus less sets and a higher rep range. And they essentially found the same hypertrophy between groups, which some people might take this and be like, sweet, I can lift heavy and I can still grow and stuff like that. However, the two major caveats on here are time and fatigue. So I believe the group that did just the three by 10, I think that they were in and out in like an hour less time, or it was a very significant less time cost. And if we think about that, just practically, how long would it take you to do a seven by three on squats? And then how long would it take you to do a three by 10? For me, that difference is probably like 45 minutes to an hour. So a huge time cost there. And not only that, the group that did the more sets and less reps, so the seven by three, they also experienced just a lot more fatigued and they generally felt kind of like overtrained and overreached at the end of the study. And I think that that's a good example that, yeah, you know, rep range for hypertrophy, it might not be the biggest deal in the world if we equate for kind of total, total levels of volume, but there are practical considerations for time and fatigue. And I think that in general, 
it's a good idea to stay in that five plus rep range if our primary goal is hypertrophy. And I think that, you know, the old adage of the eight to 12 rep range being best for hypertrophy, while that's been, you know, debunked a bit to where we can train, you know, 30 reps per set. And as long as it's close enough to failure, we're probably fine. And like this other study, if we do enough sets at lower rep ranges, we can probably still grow. But I still think that if our primary goal is hypertrophy and we want to maximize that st stimulus to fatigue ratio, having our average number of reps still fall pretty dang close to that eight to 12 range is probably a pretty good idea. So yeah, you can absolutely do some six to eight, some eight to 10, stuff like that. And you can go above that and do the 15 to 20, 25 to 30, doing metabolite techniques, everything that you want to do. I think that there's, it's a good idea to work in the entire variety and that entire spectrum. But I think that having our average be around that kind of sweet spot of eight to 15, somewhere in there is probably a good idea. And I, I very, very rarely program anything below about five or six reps per set when we are specifically focused on hypertrophy for that reason of time. And it's generally just a little bit more fatiguing for that amount of stimulus that we're getting per set there. Yeah. Well, I mean, would you say that, okay, so north of 30 reps is probably represents a load that isn't heavy enough to, to even when brought close to failure and maybe in a binary sense, you can still build, you can still have hypertrophy north of 30 reps, but it's just becomes increasingly um, negligible amounts. But let's say north of 30 represents a load that's just too light to really give you a robust hypertrophy stimulus, even if it's brought close to failure. And mm -hmm. you almost can almost think of like the hypertrophy rep range five to 30, let's say, which is super wide and, and almost yeah. non-contextual. Like it exists because of SFR. And I think that study represents the fact that volume is going to be the thing that is the primary driver of hypertrophy once intensity is equated. And so mm -hmm. you could do singles. You could do 10 <laughs> singles, you know? But if right. you think about how fatiguing and how much joint stress and, and, and central nervous system stress and how long it would take, we start to mm -hmm. kind of narrow down the the hypertrophy rep range to something that does optimize SFR, like doing, if you took your whole program and only did sets of five on everything, it would be more fatiguing. All right. So we just had a small technical difficulty. My power went out, but we're back at it. I was talking about something to do with how SFR kind of influences the hypertrophy rep range. Um, and kind of what I want to talk about next is how does it influence the rep range that you're choosing within exercise selection? So you've, okay. You're acknowledging that, um, seven sets of three might be a poor SFR. You might be better off with three sets of 10. Um, but great. Now, now, now I'm doing leg press or I'm doing squat and like, how am I, how does SFR influence the rep range once I've decided which exercise I'm going to do? Absolutely. So this kind of goes back to what you talked about earlier with, you know, how, how you will tell me as your coach, dude, do not program squats over eight reps. All I get out of that is feeling winded and not actually having my cardiovascular system being the limiting factor of this exercise opposed to my quads or my glutes or whatever you're training. So there are exercises that are more or less conducive to certain rep ranges. So if we think about some of those larger taxing exercises, you might find that that kind of that five to 10 rep range is a much better sweet spot for those. So we're kind of thinking like squats or a deadlift or lunges, different things like that. Because when we kind of go in the 12 or 15 reps. And that's not to say that that can't be effective. I think that if 
your cardiovascular system is up for, that can actually be a really good st stimulus to do some of those higher rep sets on some of those exercises. But for the most part, staying in a rep range to where you make sure that it's not your cardiovascular system that's being the limiting factor on those and making sure it's actual your quads and different things like that will be beneficial. And kind of on the flip side of this, if we look at something like a, a lateral raise or even a, a bicep curl, if we try to go in the five to 10 rep range too much on those movements, well, we might end up feeling like our, our wrists get beat up more, our elbows get beat up more. This like on tricep movements, especially a lot of clients, they feel their elbows just get beat up on those. But if we can work in them, maybe a little bit higher of a rep range on these, they don't notice that as much. So this kind of comes back and it's very much so in line with our discussion on kind of SFR and stimulus to fatigue to where you might notice that on these more isolation movements. So curls, triceps, delts, stuff like that. You might notice that you, if you go too heavy on these, like the five to 10 rep range, you might notice more elbow fatigue and fatigue in other areas opposed to the muscle that we are trying to train. And this is exactly what we've been talking about. And if you stick in that, maybe that 10 to 20 rep range more so on those movements, you might get more just muscle stimulus without kind of beating yourself up more. And on the flip side, like on a squat and stuff like that, if you stay in that kind of maybe that five to 10 rep range a little bit more on these bigger movements, we might notice that we're just less generally fatigued after a set, but we get a similar stimulus doing sets of seven or eight compared to sets of 12 or 13. So you definitely have this kind of in individuality per set, depending on exercises and uh, a decent rule of thumb is looking at, you know, kind of how overall taxing the exercise is, how kind of compoundy the exercise is. I would say the, the more kind of compoundy it is. So multi-joint exercises like squats, deadlifts, stuff like that, maybe erring on being on the lower end of the rep range that we've been talking about. So in that five to 10, five to 12, and then the more kind of isolation it is, the more that you might want to stick in that upper end. So 10 to 15, 10 to 20, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think it comes back to what is the, what is the goal of the set? The goal is to make the target muscle the limiting muscle, not your cardiovascular mm -hmm. system, not synergist muscles, not your low back, not your breathing, right? It's like, think of a fit, just think, I always talk to my clients. I bring my clients in a lot of times on the programming side. We'll sit together, we'll screen share, we'll look at the program, I'm like, all right, what do you want to do next time? They're like, all right, I really want to keep the squat, but maybe we change the rep range. And, or, or I'll ask them week to week, you know, you have the opportunity to progress with either reps or, or load. And it will be, you know, they'll be on like a nine rep squat. And they're, I'm like, okay, what do you want to do next week? And they're like, I don't want to do 10 reps of squats. Like I'm already huffing and puffing. I'd rather add five pounds. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that, that kind of, a lot of times uh, my, my first introduction to people with SFR and in, in this, in this rep range uh, construct here is, is intuitively, what feels the best for you? Yeah. Like, and if you're, if somebody's, I'm like lateral raises, what feels the best? Nobody is saying five rep max lateral raise. Yeah. Five rep max lateral raise means you're flinging your arms up with heaven and earth. Your neck veins are popping out. You put the dumbbells down. You're like, what the hell did I even do? I don't have a pump. I don't have a feeling of tension. My whole arms hurt. My elbows hurt. I don't even know what's going on. You grab 
you know, uh, a more moderate weight, you get 12 to 20 reps, let's say on your lateral raise, like you actually get a chance to feel it in the delts. You elbows probably don't hurt. Like you're not, your, your traps, neck aren't exploding. Um, and so intuitively, a lot of people are already applying this. When I, when I think of, when I say squat and I say, what is, do you want to do 20 or do you want to do seven? Like more people understand, okay, I want to do seven reps squat, 20 reps of squats something other than my quads is going to break down. I'm going to, me personally, I'm going to be uh, cardiovascularly fatigued. I'm going to pass out. Um, and so I think intuitively we know this. Nobody wants to do a 25 rep deadlift. Like you want to do 25 rep cable curl? Yeah, sure. Maybe. Yeah, for sure. And I think mm -hmm. you made a good point on the fatigue side of things. If you're doing these isolation, single joint movements, super heavy, you might mess up your elbows, your shoulders, whatever. Um, it might feel like that's what's, what's happening but you also might on the flip side, feel a better stimulus component. So you're getting kind of both bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, th I think that it's important to know that like when, you know, me and a training partner sit down at the leg press, like I might want to do the eight to 12, for example, and he or she might want to do the 15 to 20 because she might, you know, he or she might be like, you know, this is what really blows up my quads. doesn't hurt my knees. Um, and, you know, that's the trade-off that to me is worth it. And I might be like, oh, man, 15 to 20, like I just, uh, I don't get anything out of it. I'm cardiovascular fatigued, feeling it in my, like my low back and my knees start to bother me. And so starting to understand that you can, you're allowed to be unique. You're allowed to have an opinion on what feels best. Now, I don't think everybody's at the place where they're going to have this vast opinion, but I think mm -hmm. it's starting to pay attention, starting to build that is super important. Um, cool. Yep, and, I, absolutely. and it, an interesting kind of, nuance to me would be how much that how something feels to us in a certain rep range is determined by it, like our our muscle fiber distribution and stuff like that but i don't think we yeah. necessarily need to go down well, that you road do what you're good at right i mean you yeah. you would do what you're good at and so you'll you'll have you'll have uh potentially women who might have a higher distribution of of slower twitch fibers than men let's say across large populations who might actually enjoy higher rep training higher you know whatever on the whole not Mm -hmm. dumbbells in the 50 rep range i mean higher <laughs> in general yeah. um yeah i totally get that one thing i will say though is like if you go just based and this goes for a lot of things I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of correlates here but like if you just do the things that you really like that isn't always the best rule of thumb nobody Absolutely. like yeah. do, doing really heavy like doing fives on a squat is still freaking hard and if you program me 20 like what might be best for me or at least at certain times in my programming, let's say, is like doing 20 plus reps of lateral raises, 20 plus reps. Of, man, that shit hurts. And it sucks. Mm -hmm. It's not fun to do. The first 15 reps don't feel like anything. And all of a sudden your arm feels like it's going to blow off. It's like burning to death. And so it's like, okay, yes, I do want to start forming an opinion about what feels yeah. great for them. But just be aware that there are very likely things that you don't want to do, not because they're bad SFR, but because they hurt. Um, and so just keep that in mind for sure. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That's something I actually wanted to mention earlier to where it's like, at some level, there's going to be stuff that you need to do in the gym to get the results that you want that you don't want to do. Like yeah. everybody would love to just kind of hang out at the house and, you know, just get jacked. But on some level, we have to do stuff that's challenging and that challenge us in the gym and doing stuff that we don't want to do. So yeah, absolutely. Good point there. Awesome. So let, let's close it down with something that I think is super important. I think we talk a lot here. We did a good job of bridging optimal and practical, but I think one of the most practical variables that is introduced for a lot of general people, myself included, is time. And I saw Mike and the rest of the RP guys speak at a, a seminar in Philly, and they had this really nice graphic of 
you know, high stimulus magnitude and, and high, low stimulus magnitude, high fatigue. And they had this corner of there, it was SFTR, stimulus to fatigue to time ratio. And it's like, okay, we take stimulus to fatigue ratio into account. We also have to lay over the fact that for a lot of people, time is the limiting factor. Like if you don't have any time restrictions, then applying stimulus to fatigue ratio across the board and doing only the things that give you the best stimulus, the least fatigue, and then doing the most training you can, that is how you get the most jack. However, you have to introduce a time component because most people are not limited by you know, their capacity to, to recognize SFR. They're limited by the fact that I have four hours a week to train. I need mm -hmm. to maximize my time in the gym. So how does that change the dynamic between stimulus and fatigue? Yeah, so if... This is super interesting as well to where, you know, if someone is under very strong time constraints, I'm honestly less concerned about the fatigue aspect of this as we're just limited by the amount of time to where we're less concerned about getting to the point to where we're just doing way too much in the gym to really have to worry a ton about that fatigue component, which doesn't mean that we pick, you know, shitty exercises for us or anything like that, but we might make those trade-offs of, Maybe this has a little bit more fatigue per set, but maybe that's actually what we kind of want here, you know, to kind of speed up our workout. So for example, you might use kind of non-impeding muscle group supersets to where in the course of three or four minutes, you might complete two sets, but those might be non-impeding muscles. So you might superset a bicep curl with a tricep pushdown. And if we purely come at this from stimulus and fatigue, well, when you alternate between those muscle groups and kind of go every other set like that, you're probably going to go into your triceps set with a little bit of bicep fatigue and you're probably vice versa for your biceps. And going into that set with a little bit more systemic fatigue and stuff like that, is that best kind of regarding our stimulus to fatigue ratio per set and stuff like that? Maybe not, but is that a far more efficient way to train? And does that potentially allow us to reach a level of stimulus that's overloading for muscle hypertrophy? Yeah, that's, that's also true. So when we're under these kind of strong time constraints, we can kind of make these trade-offs a little bit more to where, you know, on paper, we might do one exercise or one set at a time, give ourselves three minutes between every set and just have everything to a T. But on some level that doesn't become super practical anymore. And I think that, there's times and places to where you don't necessarily want to make that trade-off to where if you're doing compound lifts, you probably don't want to superset that with really any other lifts because of the impact that that's going to have on your compound lift performance so much to where then it's going to bring down that stimulus portion aspect on that compound lift to the level to where we're not really getting as much out of it anymore. So I would say non-impeding supersets on more kind of isolation muscle groups, a really effective strategy to where I still think that we can get plenty stimulus there and save on that time. And then that stimulus to fatigue to time ratio is actually pretty good. And I'm just thinking like, we are such fucking nerds right now <laughs> talking about this stimulus yeah, to sure. fatigue to time ratio, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that can, that can help out with things. Also, you can use different strategies like mile rep sets. I'm not sure how familiar your audience might be here so it looks oh, like my, every one of my clients does my reps don't worry they all know they know the pain uh, yeah awesome so that's a way to where you know if you look at it on a per set basis maybe if we just did traditional sets and we just did normal rest times and stuff like that maybe that would have a little bit better stimulus to fatigue ratio but 
when we bring in that time component there and the limiting factor is our time, not how much fatigue we're producing, then something like mile reps, drop sets, stuff like that, it, it makes that trade-off worth it. So those are a few considerations that I can think of there. I'm not sure if you have any follow-up questions there or anything like that or where you want to take this here. Yeah, I think, I think the introduction of time changes the hierarchy of things a little bit. Um, and just on a simple, very broad level, we are looking at stimulus to time ratio more than we're looking at stimulus to fatigue ratio. We are looking mm -hmm. at both, but we shift the hierarchy a little bit. We're now thinking about how much stimulus am I getting for how much time? And yes, there's intersection where some people are training just enough. They're training five, six hours a week, which means, okay, yes, you're limited by time. You still have enough time where we should worry about fatigue. It's not like, it's not like we could give you the craziest stimulative workout and you wouldn't get really fatigued. You're training enough. So some people are in that mm -hmm. middle ground, but we're looking at like all of a sudden I'm more concerned with the stimulus, uh, uh, the stimulus of the exercise and less concerned with the fatigue. And I'm worried about the time it takes to set up and the time it takes to execute the time it takes to rest and the time it takes to, you know, move across the gym. And so I'm thinking about things like, not, you're right. Like you said, not impeding supersets, upper, lower, upper, lower antagonist supersets, um, things that are like increasing the workout density, um, even circuits and giant sets and intensity yeah. techniques, things that are going to give us a really good stimulus to time. People ask me, what's the point of myo reps? It's like in a very general sense, myo rest being a, a modification of like a rest pause. Um, it's a good stimulus to time ratio. It gives you the mm -hmm. feeling, the potential yeah. stimulus of nearly identical to straight sets, but in a much, a very condensed time. And so I think that for a lot of people out there, stimulus of T ratio is super cool. And, you know, you might've heard us talk about deadlift and, and RDL and, and squat and leg press, but it's like, dude, you got 30 minutes. Like I'm probably going to want you to do really high stimulative exercises. I'm probably going to care a whole lot less about the fatigue. I'm actually probably going to care more about how long it takes you to put plates on and take plates off and get across the gym. And, and so for a lot of people out there, stimulus Absolutely. fatigue ratio is super cool. But if you're not overlaying the fact that you only have so much time in the gym, somebody might be like, you know, I really feel this like single arm cable, high half kneeling cable, high row, the best, <laughs> great SFR. And I'm like, okay, dude, you got 15 minutes. We're barbell rowing. You know, this is like no two ways about yeah. it. I need the most robust stimulus. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think that when it comes to application to the average person, most people's limiting factor is time. And when it is time, we need a lot of stimulus. And it's not that fatigue doesn't matter. It's just you probably don't even have enough time to reach your, you know, fatigue threshold to a point where we really need to be worried about it. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you even hit on kind of the time that it takes to warm up for an exercise and stuff like that. Yeah. As an example that comes to mind is like, barbell hip thrust to where there's a significant totally. ti time cost to set those up. And this isn't talking shit on the hip thrust, like a great movement to build the glutes, like one of the best. But when it comes to the just time that it takes to set that movement up and that sort of thing, maybe we could get a similar stimulus, which is squatting or RDLs or lunges and I stuff actually, like that. I actually set those up on a Smith machine for this, this block um, and thought to myself, very good stimulus to time ratio. Like the, the bar is already elevated. I'm not lifting yeah. the bar up to put stuff on. Like I just move the bench over. Um, you know, I'm not rolling the bar off and on. I know this sounds like little things, but like to me, like it matters a little bit of saving time and being able to honestly, like how different is the steam people shit on the Smith machine all the time. Like how different is the stimulus? Like probably not very. Um, it's probably, and for me, you have to ask, yes, it's, it's personal, but like for me, that trade-off is definitely worth it. I want to be respectful of your time. We've been on here for a super long time. I'm sorry about the power outage. I know no, it only lasted seven minutes, but we're good to go. Uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and uh, we'll definitely have you on again, right? Yep. So you can, I think revivestronger.com is where you can see stuff from revive. 
also at Team Revive Stronger Instagram. And then me on Instagram is at Ryan J. Salma, but I don't post much on there. So if you want the fitness stuff, go to at Team Revive Stronger on Instagram. So yeah, and I think that your big three is definitely one of the best like uh, summation of content that there is. So definitely Team Revive Stronger. You you post some good stuff on there. So for sure. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate you having me on here, man. My pleasure, man. Thanks a lot, dude. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.